Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and on this episode, Chelsea Slotten and I share some of our favorite archaeological finds, history-based shows, and interesting news from 2022. Each segment was pre-recorded during the holiday season. We hope you enjoy this short episode. We all look forward to sharing new stories and research in 2023. Hi everybody, it's Chelsea from the Women in Archaeology podcast, um, and here are my best of 2022 for archaeology. I'm doing them in chronological order, not order of importance, um, so buckle up and let's get into it. My first one is just like a small shout out to some archaeology that's going on in the UK because that's where I live. Um, But in February of 2022, this absolutely gorgeous uh, Roman mosaic was found in London from the 2nd to the 3rd centuries AD. um, And some remnants from a a previous mosaic to the one they found have also um, been discovered at the location. They think that the room that it was found in was potentially a dining room, um, maybe in a hotel, maybe not. There's not a lot more information out on there, but it's local-ish. Um, so I was going to bring it up. Kind of a, a big exciting thing for the underwater archaeology nerds out there. Um, I'm certainly one. Is um, in March of 2022, a team of researchers discovered the wreck of Ernest Shackleton's endurance ship on the Antarctic sea floor. Um, for those of you who don't know kind of the story of the endurance The Endurance was last seen in 1915 when Shackleton and the 27 men who were on the um, ship with him, his crew, watched as it sank. Um, The mission that they were supposed to be undertaking was to reach the South Pole by traveling over a, at the time, unmapped bit um, of the East Arctic. However, in early 1915, the ship became trapped in pack ice They waited it out for about 10 months, um, hoping that when the ice thawed in September, um, that it would free the ship. Remember, this is the Southern Hemisphere, so um, spring is in the uh, kind of September, October area. Anyways, in September, as the ice um, was starting to thaw and starting to move a bit, um, it put a ton of pressure on the ship, which kind of warped, crushed, and twisted the boat's um, wooden frame. Um, Shackleton's kind of quest to to rescue his crew has gone on to be a little bit like the stuff of legends. So this crew survived um, five days at sea to land um, three lifeboats at Elephant Island, um, where they set up a makeshift camp. Shackleton and five other members of the crew then decided to take an 800-mile journey on a small whaling boat um, to get help from um, South Georgia Island. Thanks to the bravery of Charlton and his men, um, all 28 men survived, and the uh, men who were on the Elephant Island were rescued in 1917. Coming back to the present day in 2022, um, no one really knew where this ship had gone down with a rough idea um but a team spent about two weeks searching using two uh, submersible crafts to scan the sea floor um 
they had kind of blocked out 150 square mile area. Um, but they actually found the endurance and it was only four miles from where they predicted it would be, which is really impressive. Um, and the preservation on the ship is incredible because of the cold temperatures. Um, so you can still see, you know, lettering and rigging and it's scientist report. is absolutely amazing. Um, it is also currently home to many of our friends in the deep sea. So moving on to May of 2022, archaeologists in Mexico uncovered the ruins of an ancient Mayan city filled with palaces, pyramids, and plazas. Um, this was on a construction site for what will become an industrial park near Merida. So I apologize for my pronunciation. And this one, um, I did look up how to pronounce different names, but I'm probably still going to butcher them. Um, so apologies in advance on that. Um, anyways, this um, industrial park that they're building near Merida is on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Um, kind of not necessarily archaeology related, but Merida is one stop of the highly controversial Tren Maya Railway that Mexico is building to link Cancun to some other ancient Mayan um, temples further west um, that are also big tourist hotspots, the way Cancun is. I can't say specifically whether or not the construction of this site was directly linked to the railway construction, um, but it is currently going on. And it's worth noting that um, a lot of scientists have said that this railway will endanger pristine wilderness and an ancient cave system under the jungle floor. Um, so it is really controversial. It is also estimated to con create around three quarters of a million jobs along the route and improve connection to um, the areas along the, on, along the route. Um, so those are kind of the positives. But the site that they found um, is called Zeol, um, which has features from the Maya Puk style of architecture. Uh, it's really kind of an interesting place to see this because that style is common more in the um, southern Yucatan Peninsula, but pretty rare near Merida. And um, it's just kind of interesting. The palace construction there is about 55 meters by 15 meters wide and six meters high. Um, and kind of looking at the material re remains, it looks as if the site was inhabited in two phases, one in the late classic period, which is seven, 600 to 900 AD, um, and another in the terminal classic period, which is um, kind of 850 to, to 1050. So those, do, those periods do overlap a little bit. And then um, Carlos Pereza, who's one of the archaeologists um, who helped lead the excavation of the city so that they think that more than 4,000 people lived there. And they expect that it would be people from different social classes, priests and scribes living in the great palaces. Um, and there were also common people living in the small buildings. Coming back to the UK for July of 2022, um, some excavations took place at a Neolithic tomb that has long been linked to King Arthur. It's actually called um, Arthur's Stone. This is another one where you're talking about kind of two phases of construction. When the tomb was first constructed, um, it had a long southwest facing mound surrounded by wooden posts. The mound fell over um, 
And when it was rebuilt, um, they used more posts and as well as the addition of two rock chambers and an upright stone. Um, and after the reconstruction, the posts faced southeast rather than southwest. The site is not very well understood at present, so unsurprisingly, um, many archaeologists have suggested that it may have been used for ritual purposes, um, which if you listen to the show, you'll know often happens when archaeologists don't know what happened. Um, but beyond this kind of tenuous link to King Arthur, um, it's both called Arthur Stone and it's also suggested um, as like a origin story, like creation myth, that King Arthur had a pebble in his shoe, took it out of his shoe, um, tossed it over to the side, and the stone pebble um, swelled in pride at having been touched by him. Um, but in addition to this connection, it's also rumored that the writer C.S. Lewis uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia um, based the stone table and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe off of Arthur's stone. Um, so that's a, another cool connection. Talking um, about what I think is now like the most important thing that's happened in archaeology and heritage studies this year, um, we're going to talk about the return of the Benin Bronzes. Various different things were happening kind of throughout the year. I've put this in October of 2022. Um, because I'm going to be talking about uh, the Smithsonian's return a bit um, more in depth simply because it made a bigger splash um, and some of the other places that have returned the Benin Bronzes like Germany um, might have had really great coverage but I don't speak German. <laughs> so museums kind of across um, Europe as I have mentioned, Germany, some museums in the UK um, as well as museums in the United States have um, housed uh, and displayed artifacts that were stolen from the kingdom of Benin, which is in modern day Southwest Nigeria. Um, these objects were stolen during a violent raid by British colonial forces um, about 125 years ago and were kind of scattered across the world, mostly to colonial powers. Um, and some museums are taking steps to return the pieces. The Benin Bronzes um, is kind of a colloquial name for them. They're not necessarily all from you know, the, the same location, but they include sculptures, plaques, ceremonial objects, altars, and other artifacts. Um, in a joint ceremony in October, the National Gallery of Art and the Smithsonian's National Museum of African Art um, kind of legally transferred ownership of 30 Benin bronzes, 29 of which come from the Smithsonian um, to the people of Nigeria. Of those 29 items, 20 of them will be returned to Nigeria's National Commission for Museums and Monuments, and nine will remain loan, on loan to the National Museum of African Art um, to be displayed. Some of the works that will be going back to Nigeria include a ceremonial sword, um, as well as sculptures, um, a sculpture that depicts the head of an Obara king. Um, this is part of the Smithsonian's new ethical returns policy. Like I mentioned um, at the beginning of talking about the Benin Bronzes, uh, Germany also has been working to return their objects 
Um, they transferred ownership of around a thousand items in July, and a subset of those have been uh, relocated in December. Um, the Horn Horniman Museum in South London also re returned some of their looted Benin bronzes to Nigeria in November, but the work on this is really not done. The British Museum has the largest collection of Benin bronzes, and at the time of recording this, um, is not returning the looted objects, and it really doesn't even want to talk about it. It's pretty common for the, the British Museum, so don't really want to return the Parthenon marbles. Um, but there's definitely still a lot of work to do here. And then um, looking at two things that happened in November, but more firmly that didn't kind of happen across months, but some scientists at the Center for Research Technology and Innovation Laboratories at the University of Seville announced that they had successfully applied an optically stimulated and luminescence technique. I'm not entirely sure what that involves, um, but I've linked to the article if you want to get into it. But they've applied this technique to some hominid footprints found at Maltescanus in 2020. And this technique helped to determine that the footprints are in fact 20, 20 200,000 years older than was previously uh, suspected. So this would mean that uh, pre-Neanderthal hominid species uh, was living in the Donana region during the Middle Pleistocene, which is about 295, 296,000 years ago. Um, and then another one from um, the UK, mostly because I'm really impressed with the, the preservation on it, um, a rare flute that was made from bone, probably either sheep or a goat, um, was unearthed at an archaeological site near Hearn Bay in Kent. It's likely from the um, 13th to 15th century, um, the flute itself hasn't been um, dated, but there was a lot of medieval pottery found nearby from that um, time period. And if you know bones, they don't always preserve very well in the archaeological record. Um, so that was a cool thing to see. And then something else to keep your eye out for in um, 2023 and beyond. Um, we're going to move to Scotland, uh, which is, you know, actually where I live. Um, but there's a group called the Big Broch Build, which is a group of kind of volunteer experimental archaeologists in Caithness in Scotland who have been working to kind of get a better understanding of brochs uh, through constructing one. A broch is an Iron Age structure that is only found in Scotland. They were generally built between 400 BC and 100 AD. It's about 500 years. Um, and there are more in Caithness than there are anywhere else in Scotland. There's some um, kind of debate around what the purpose of these buildings was for, right? If you know an archaeologist, you know they love to debate. Um, one possibility is that they were kind of housing of some type, maybe for a chieftain um, or for several families. You know, storage has been suggested. There's a lot of kind of question marks. Um, they're really impressive structures, though. Some of them stand uh, or stood over 13 meters high, which is like 40 feet, if my quick um, 
metric to imperial conversion works. If it's not, I apologize. Um, and they would have been really kind of imposing on the, the landscape. They're generally made of dry stone walls, um, some of which are five meters thick in some places, which is another question of like, why were they building walls that were five meters thick? That's roughly 15 feet thick. Who needs a wall that's 15 feet thick? Um, so the big rock build is um, looking to understand what these buildings were about by building them. And they're currently working to identify um, suitable land to build on um, as they already have architectural designs in, in place and have consulted with engineers to make sure that everything's you know, going to be safe and um, archaeologists to make sure that it's accurate. Um, they do expect that buildings going to take five to seven years and are hoping to start soon. Um, and then once they're done, it is hoped that the Brock would turn into a living history space. So that's just kind of a, a cool project to keep your eye on going forward. Thanks so much for listening to me talk about the coolest things that I thought happened in archaeology in 2022 with a bonus, keep your eye out in 2023. Um, I hope you all are having a great month um, and we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and animals. There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Emily Long. I'm one of the hosts of the Women in Archaeology, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the stories and shows and archaeological sites that have sparked my interest this past year. Um, not all of these actually were discovered or came out in this past year, but happened to come across my desk, computer, and phone, um, especially while I was on maternity leave and did some deep dives into Netflix and PBS and so on. One of the things that I've really enjoyed is the ongoing effort to highlight ignored populations in the past, uh, such as prehistoric women. And that makes me happy to see in popular media, especially as long as, well, not especially, but as long as it's done well. Uh, I watched an episode on PBS of The Secrets of the Dead, which is a fun show. And the episode went into the lives of women in deep history. So going thousands and thousands and thousands of years back and looking at how archaeology can shed light on our, as they quoted, ancient foremothers. Uh, unfortunately, the episode has a terrible title. It's called Lady Sapiens. Ha ha ha. But it actually it did a really great job looking at the research um, and archaeology and talked to a number of experts about the important role women played. There's that misconception of, you know, man, hunter, woman, gather, and that was it. But it, uh, as a lot of recent um, discoveries have shown, like of skeletal remains and so forth, like it shows that women were having a much greater 
impact in terms of um, hunting that women probably were hunting, making tools, but on the same side of it, that gathering is just as important, if not more important in terms of caloric intake. And so just showing that roles and things that people needed to do to survive, which were much, much more diverse than, you know, these two ideas of manhunter, woman gatherer. Uh, one of the cool things they showed, um, like, bone and muscle connections of how women could be throwing spears by comparing to modern um, female javelin throwers. I thought that was really interesting and comparing the muscle connections and then um, also talking about the important role of grandmothers um, that we see that anthropologically in a lot of um, different types of societies today and that the survival of children after weaning may have largely been placed on the grandmothers who would have then taught um, which foods to eat, how to be safe, um, uh, just very important life skills, and how a lot of that comes from a very, very long time ago. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing um, to see in a show. Uh, again, terrible title. Why did they have to go with Lady Sapiens is beyond me, but I thought that was just a really unique thing, and I'll put a link to the show. Um, it was on PBS and should be easily available, um, and if not, there should be uh, PBS clips on YouTube. Other shows that came out, unfortunately, were not quite as great. There's a lot of uh, terrible pseudo-archaeological shows that came out this past year, one of them being Ancient Apocalypse. But what has been great to see is the really large outcry against such terrible shows. Um, we're seeing that outcry from the archaeological community um, against such programs and um, showing that it, not only are these shows poor research, that they are uh, largely rooted in misguided, racist, antiquated uh, concepts of the past. So that has been at least a very positive thing to see, despite some very terrible uh, pseudoscience shows coming out. And one other show that I that came across <laughs> my TV while I was on maternity leave was The Rings of Power. Now that has nothing to do with archaeology, but what I find interesting is how there's that outcry that like, oh no, there are, um, you know, black elves and, and female dwarves and all these different things that people were just like, that is not, we wouldn't see historically. Well, for one thing, the Rings of Power, which is um, based in the Tolkien world of the Lord of the Rings, if you're not familiar, um, it's a, it's fantasy. It's fake. Um, it's rooted in myth and legend and whatnot, but I just find it very funny that there's this very um, difficult to separate concept about like what people think the past looked like even in a fantasy world and what's kind of fun is there's um then like on twitter and instagram and some articles that came out that really showed that kind of the medieval world the dark ages and so forth that some of the tolkien stuff is based on um actually that world was incredibly diverse and in that you had actually all kinds of people in the medieval world interacting with one another and that you wouldn't just have a whole bunch of um, one uh, race or another that you would actually have a lot more diversity and so even though we have here we have a show that is very much rooted in fantasy um, there's it came it was kind of cool to see how uh, 
there was then a highlight of how the medieval ages, the dark ages, and so forth was actually far more diverse than what um, we may think. In terms of archaeological discoveries, um, one of the things that I found kind of cool was not so much a discovery, but a rediscovery of information that had probably been overshadowed for a really long time. Um, there have been a lot of academic articles and popular media articles like in the Smithsonian or um, History Revealed or BBC History Magazine um, showing the backstory of how King Tut's tomb was discovered. Um, and there's like such a legend behind the discovery of uh, Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt and how um, Lord Carter discovered the tomb and then there were these curses and so on and so forth. There's a lot of a lot of story and myth and legend surrounding all of that. And then, of course, how can you not be interested in all the incredible artifacts that were found in the tomb from, you know, the gold death masks and the sarcophagi and the jewelry and all these different things. What is cool about a lot of these articles that are coming out, when I, when I say a rediscovery of information, is looking at who helped actually excavate this tomb, who helped with the discovery of these tombs. And it's highlighting the workers, the Egyptian workers and their families that did so much of the bulwark behind finding King, King Tutankhamun's tomb. It probably would have never been discovered by um, Lord Carter if it had not been for his workers. They had helped discover the steps that then um, led, eventually led down into the tomb. It was them that removed all the sediment. It was them who helped uh, actually like get to the door and like move all the sediment again and then help go through the artifacts and everything and i know it's a large part of the past the colonial past and so forth of why we don't know so much about the workers and the important role they played but it's great to see the effort to highlight these stories now in terms of other important events and stories um, coming about this past year includes the um the dedication of the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site in eastern Colorado, which commemorates the traumatic events of the 1864 massacre. Um, it, it's an incredibly tragic event, and it's good to see that the stories of what occurred at that time are being highlighted and with consultation with the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes that um, there are new exhibits being put up in, in places like History Colorado that again have been done in consultation with the uh, descendants. So I highly recommend looking at the dedication of the site as well as the exhibits that have come out and see the type of research that is coming out more and more and highlighting the importance of consultation and doing all of this with consultation. There was also the signing of the Native American Boarding School Research Program Act in Colorado, um, which was signed by Governor Polis, and um, it has History Colorado um, conduct research to try to better understand the physical and emotional abuse that occurred at the federal 
Indian boarding schools in Colorado. And my hope is to see other states do this as well um, and keep following the trend in trying to highlight the this horrible history that occurred um, in our nation and the horrible treatment of Native American children, um, especially as we keep finding unmarked graves. And so I think it's incredible that with the dedication of the Sand Creek Massacre site, National Historic Site, as well as um, this act, um, it, it's highlighting the less patriotic, I guess, aspects of our of our nation's history because there's such a trend in trying to be like, no, uh, America's perfect, history was perfect, etc., etc., and we can only move forward in our future in a positive light by understanding what has actually happened in the past. And I think these are a great step forward in, one, trying to make even the smallest reparations towards Native American groups that were treated horribly in in the past as well as the ongoing issues um, and and showing um, a more nuanced version of our past. As always, I highly recommend looking into all kinds of ways of learning more about the past. Um, it's There's so many great ways to do so. One of my favorite ways are always going to be podcasts. Um, I love Go Dig a Hole, Sawbones, You're Dead to Me. Um, there's so many just great ones out there. Um, and as I mentioned, Sawbones and You're Dead to Me are probably my favorites at the moment. I highly recommend looking them up if you enjoy obscure medical history and uh, a lot of fun um, history uh, written by a lot of nerdy history written by the horrible history folks um, in the UK. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. If you're interested in supporting our effort to continue to provide a space for women in the field to make their voices heard, please check out our Patreon page. You can find us on Twitter at @womenarchies, and our website is at womeninarchaeology.com. Contact us for podcast and blog ideas at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. Until next time, bye!